Uh, welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Today, we're honored to have a special guest, Kendall Qualls. Uh, but before I tell you about Kendall, uh, I'm Ron Scott, a founder and vice president of a nonprofit organization called Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. You can learn more about STARS at our website, www.stars.us. That's www.stars with two R's.us. So before we get into our discussion, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today, Kendall Qualls. Kendall is the president of a unique organization called Take Charge MN. Take Charge strives to unite Americans regardless of background toward a shared history and common set of beliefs. At Take Charge, they celebrate the idea of the American dream and encourage people working to achieve it. Mr. Qualls leads an organization that inspires and educates black and other minority communities to take charge of their own lives and not to rely on government and politicians for redemption and prosperity. Mr. Qualls has a unique vantage point to convey that message and to plant the seeds of change desperately needed. During his childhood, Mr. Qualls lived with his divorced mother and siblings in a public housing project of Harlem in the late 1960s. That gives you a little context. Before middle school, Mr. Qualls left New York City to live with his father who lived in a trailer park in Oklahoma. Neither of his parents finished high school. Despite the challenges and turmoil of his early life, Mr. Qualls worked full time to pay for college, served as an officer in the United States Army, earned three graduate degrees, including an MBA from the University of Michigan. He worked his way up the ranks at several Fortune 100 healthcare companies before he became global vice president of an $850 million business unit. Mr. Qualls champions the principles of meritocracy and supports the notion that free enterprise and the private sector are the fastest and most equitable way to lift people from poverty to posterity, including black Americans. Mr. Qualls has been married to his wife, Sheila, for 35 years, and they have five children together. He was a mentor at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. He serves on the board for Lundstrom's Performing Arts Center in North Minneapolis, as well as Hope Farm School, a school for at-risk boys from Minneapolis. Welcome, Kendall. Well, thank you, Ron. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Tell you, it's it's a tremendous honor. I I've met you before, uh, and I am such a uh, an admirer of your mission in life right now, and I want to share that with our audience. Um, Kendall, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to char to form Take Charge. Sure. So um, you know, after spending 27 years in industry. Um, I was at a point where I could take a leave of absence from my startup company I was working with to run for Congress. Um, I ran for uh, U.S. Congress in the western suburbs of the Twin Cities. And although my candidacy didn't prevail, um, a lot of my supporters suggested that I stick around, that my voice was needed in the uh, public arena. 
because my message was, was this in my life's testimony that the idea and promise of America works. It works for anyone. And that uh, we need to hear that more often. So we formed Take Charge uh, Minnesota and uh, of January of 2021. And it's it just mushroomed, it just blossomed. It, it went off like a hot rocket, to be honest with you. Um, just national appearances um, on several national networks, radio uh, networks. And, uh, and basically it's this, I spent half my time in the Twin Cities and throughout the state, spoken across the country, that the idea of America works, especially against critical race theory, that the idea of critical race theory and the premise of it is that, uh, that you know, um, America is, um, that the idea of America, what is it, it, it's failed, it's a failed experiment, basically, and that it needs to be propped up by the, this philosophy of critical race theory. Which everyone knows is really is its, um, its foundations is rooted in Marxism, and so I've been fighting back against that notion, not fighting against critical race theory, but promoting the promise of America, the idea of America, and the principles are not only that only works that it is is something that's going to save us in the future. And um, I've been, like I said, fifty percent of my time doing that, and the other fifty percent of my time is going into the black community to restore our culture. The reason why critical race theory has an agenda and has momentum is because they use the racial disparities that we see in our country, the financial disparities, the academic disparities. Um, they use those disparities to drive their agenda. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we've been used in the black community for over 50 years politically and uh, to our demise, to be quite honest with you. And so I've gone into the black community to go on the offense, say, look, guys, we did not used to live like this. When I was a kid, uh, at the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated, nearly nearly 80% of the black community was in two-parent families. Babies were born in nearly all two-parent families. In my lifetime, we've gone from 80% two-parent families to 80% fatherless homes. That's what's driving the disparity in the black community. It is not racism. It is not systemic racism, it's not white supremacy, it's not how anyone feels about the black community from the suburbs, it is that 90% of our children are born with no fathers in the home. No other civilization in the world functions in this way now or in the dawn of at the dawn of time. And so that's, that's what I've been doing and uh, driving that message has been resonating strongly um, in the black community as well as obviously outside of it. Now, Kendall, you just mentioned some very powerful uh, facts. Uh, have you noticed that a lot of people just completely dis disregard the facts when they challenge assumptions or, or uh, intuitive beliefs that they have about racial disparities? Well, yeah, there's two categories on this, Ron. There's two, and I put them in, in, in this one. One that people are unaware because they've been basically regurgitating what they've been told for decades. They assume they're in the right position and the, what they've been told are the facts. And so they can actually, they only memorize the facts. They even rarely even ever heard of the issues that I bring up. Then you have another camp that knows the facts, but it doesn't necessarily support their agenda. And they're willing to distort it. <clears throat> distort the lies or, or even ignore it 
because their agenda is paramount over everything else. Their values are not aligned with the values of American people um, or the country. If they're aligned with their agenda, power and prestige and the money that comes with it. Well, now, Kendall, you spent some time in the United States Army. Uh, share with us why you decided to join the military and how that experience shaped your view of the world right now. Sure. So, you know, what's interesting about this is that uh, so my father served. And so I had a close, you know, close view of what it meant to serve in the, in, uh, in the military, uh, as well as my grandfather. And now my son is fourth generation now serving. Uh, most Americans don't realize that less than one percent of our country has served in the service or, or is currently serving less than one percent. At the time, I did not think it was that big of a deal because, you know, when you think about serving them, serving in our country, it's an honorable and noble uh, profession, and uh, it's fought with with risk and, and and danger, and we we go we go in knowing that. And um, I I just want I wanted to embrace that. I was uh, you know red blooded American male at that time, and and. Um, and again, you, you, we do this not not to go out and um, because we want to harm and kill other advers our adversaries. We do that to defend the culture of who we are, our freedoms, and to project that to people that want the same. And so it was uh, it was a noble profession. I'm glad I did it. And real quick, Ron, I tell this story because it, you know, we don't do enough to share the benefits of freedom to other countries, but also what we are and who we are. So I served in South Korea, right on the DMZ. Um, and at this time, it was at 1989, 1990 time frame. And today, when you look at the Korean people, they're, from, you know, at the, the, at the end of the armistice that we've had in the, in the mid-50s to now, there's, I'll call it Korea 3.0. Really, if you, know, you look at four or five generations now. The South Koreans and North Koreans, same ethnic group, divided by a line of freedom. The South Koreans today, their life expectancy is 12 years longer than their cousins in the North. They're two inches taller than their cousins in the North because of malnutrition and everything else that goes with um, you know, the restrictive nature of the North, but also the benefits and values and beliefs of being free to make your own choices in life. They chose free market capitalism as uh, their, their economic method as a country, not socialism. We need to tell some of our elected officials that, but the, the, just the distinction between that one ethnic group between North and South is striking. And I call it a living case study of freedom. And I was glad to play a role. Well, Kendall, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I think a lot of our fellow Americans are treated to a narrative without being exposed to alternative narratives. And so uh, I, I am very curious, during your time in the Army, did you experience racism at all? You know, I, I did not. Um, you know, so, so here's what I share with people. Um, <clears throat> because my, 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 my father served for 25 years. And my, um, my father-in-law was actually, uh, he joined the military in 1947 when it was still segregated. So he gone through a segregated uh, Army served for 30 years, and he retired as a command sergeant major, the highest rank of the highest rank of the enlisted force. 
And um, what I share with people about not only the military, but our country, yes, we have racist people in our, in, in our, in our ranks and in our country, but the system is not racist. It used to be, especially in my parents' and grandparents' era. But, you know, that is not the same country that we are today. I often share that um, my parents and grandparents would have loved to live and grown up in the America that I grew up in. And we do not take enough credit. We do not take enough acknowledgement of the progress that we've made, not just in the military, but across our country. If anything, the military should be a model for how we how we manage, how we lead, and how we deal with diversity across uh, our country. You know, I uh, one of my favorite movies is Red Tails, and it features Benjamin O. Davis, who right. retired as a four-star, and reading his history, his biography, he was silenced the entire four years that he was a cadet at West Point. Uh, but yet he led this group of black airmen during the second world war distinguished themselves as tremendous uh, aviators and had a huge impact on the uh, the outcome of that war they experienced racism and i remember in the movie which i uh, presume is reflective of the truth benjamin o davis challenged his airmen to rise above it because they were fighting for liberty not just for themselves, but other people in the in the world. And so to me, it's just such an incredible story about people who actually did experience systemic racism, but they were bigger than that. And and they were leaders uh, in paving the way to a, an America that was less racist uh, and far more tolerant of, of different races and ethnic backgrounds and, and whatever. But what baffles me is a former superintendent at the United States Air Force Academy claimed systemic racism existed at the academy. And we have filed a Freedom of Information Act request to try to, to get a better feel for why he would say that. And we're just not getting any response. And the responses we get are they obscure the data. Uh, so what, why it's I know it's risky to to impugn motive and intent, but I just don't understand why someone in a leadership position like that would advance such a notion. Well, there's, there's a couple of things. And to your point, you know, not to assign motive or intent. But here, here's what we do know. We have the evidence. We have the facts. Whatever situations that people are personally experiencing with their fellow cadets, their fellow service members, compares to nothing that when the when the country and when the military was had sanctioned segregation when we look at where those men and women served compared to what's going on it is not even in the same hemisphere and it's to, and to, to treat it that way is is not just wrong it, it, it is it is um, it's dangerous it's absolutely it's a re, it's a repositioning of history and they're and either they're willingly or unwillingly being used to push an agenda that undermines the very foundation of our military services and the country itself. Well, now, uh, in the last election cycle, you ran for U.S. Congress. 
uh, can you share with us your motivation for doing that and uh, uh, reflect on the experience? Sure. It, it was a wonderful experience, humbling and honoring at the same time. I had people come to our campaign every week, every week that said, you know, I, I've never put a campaign sign in my yard for anyone, any politician. I've never donated. They wrote, wrote checks and never donated to a politician. I've never sat and had breakfast or dinner or a lunch meeting or gone to a campaign meeting for anyone. But your message resonated with me personally because it's my message or it's the message of my parents or grandparents. It was humbling. This is the most affluent district in the state, the western suburbs of the Twin Cities. And I was the endorsed candidate uh, for U.S. Congress to represent them in Congress. Unfortunately, I didn't prevail in that election. Um, but again, as I mentioned, that supporters, donors want me to stick around because even though I was the first time candidate, down ballot candidate in U.S. Congress in election years, presidential election year, I actually got 5% more votes than President Trump and 5% more votes than the senatorial candidate at the time, Jason Lewis. Um, that was eye-opening for the state leaders, state party leaders. Um, and so again, this is why I started to take charge and why I'm considering another election, election um, or another campaign uh, going into the new year not for U.S. Congress, but for a different, uh, a different post. Well, you have the, the courage and the vision, I think, that is so badly needed right now. Uh, what, what were you hoping to accomplish if elected? Yeah, for, for Congress, as well as in, in this next cycle around, look, I, I share with people all the time that with the men and women I served in the military um, and in corporate world where I was, I'll take the average person in those experience and replace them with nearly half the people that we have in, in, that's serving in office. Our country, our country, we are a much better country than the elected officials that serve us. And if, we're, if you can only complain so much before you have to, you decide to do something yourself. And that's what I did. And, and so again, and when I think about the people that we have here in Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, for example, um, she's uh, represents the, the, the twin uh, Minneapolis predominantly Minneapolis twin cities. The things that she said about our country, how she compared the U S army to Al Qaeda and ISIS was, um, was a dangerous, dangerous comment. And it was left unsaid, unchallenged by even people within her own party. Now look, this is, uh, you know, Democrats are patriots. There are a lot of Democrats that are patriots that love the country. But something of that nature cannot be unchallenged. It used to be, but it wasn't this time around. And I felt obligated to do something because, again, I thought it was dangerous. And it's led to this anti-American atmosphere that we have today. And I plan on uh, challenging that notion and, and providing a different narrative. We're doing that quite a bit. On, and I take charge. You can see our platform at TakeChargeMN.com. We have videos, even from the black community, that promote America that denounce critical race theory and talk about a need for all of us to get back to basics of faith, family, and education, get a better education for our children. Well, well, and you're just beginning, Kendall. <laughs> you're uh, picking up a lot of momentum and a lot of followers, which uh, is well-deserved. Uh, you recently joined <clears throat> in a partnership with 
our outfit stand together against racism and radicalism in the services. Can you explain to your viewers what motivated you to, to make that decision? Sure. I mean, it's an easy decision. I mean, for, since 1948, you know, it was the one institution in America that started this drive toward how do we integrate our diverse backgrounds of our country into a, a organization with one mutual goal to defend the, the Constitution and our country and call upon men needed to execute at a professional level. It's done so superbly for decades. If anything, it should be a model for the rest of the country, not trying to recraft it into something that is never intended to be. And, and uh, we, I went to a, a diversity town hall you know, discussion last night, and it was a gripe session, basically. It was a gripe session about people, America, the premise of America. And um, we don't it's dangerous to have that type of platform in our services. Well, now you recently appeared on the uh, Mike Huckabee show with uh, our president and co-founder, uh, Lieutenant General Rod Bishop, and uh, another gentleman by name of uh, oh, Tom Burbage from the right. Calvert Group, who has, has also partnered with us. Uh, can you share with us uh, that experience on that show? Yeah, that was a terrific experience. So, uh, you know, Mike Huckabee was gracious to have us on the rep. rep it was kind of a representation of Veterans Day, you know, that week. And, uh, you know, it, we had representatives from the Navy there with uh, Tom Burbage and, uh, you know, G General uh, Bishop was there representing the uh, Air Force and myself and Army. And we just talked about our experiences and why it was dangerous. Um, and also the value that we all have had and working together in organizations with one idea in mind, something that's bigger than ourselves. And being able to do that at a high level of excellence, despite the differences that we all have. We don't focus on the differences. We focus on what we have in common. And, um, and, and what an example the military has, has shown the rest of the country and the world that uh, what we can do as Americans. What, what makes us unique as Americans is that we're bonded, not by any ethnic identity, but by the promise of America and the Constitution. Now this this is going to be a, a tricky question, Kendall, <clears throat> and and the basis for the name of the the series, the intellectuals. Right now, the Department of Defense is going through some um, activities, talking about singling out extremism. Uh, they had an, an extremism down day. Uh, we're seeing now where diversity and inclusion is being formalized within the organization and the Air Force Academy has diversity and inclusion officers and NCOs at the cadet wing, cadet group, and cadet squadron levels. Right. And they have a separate uh, chain of command. Right. Uh, what's your sense about this? Is this misguided? Uh, is it well-intended or, you know, what are your no, thoughts? No, Ron, Ron, Ron it's, it's misguided at best, dangerous at worst. First of all, the you have a uniform structure of a chain of command and all responsibility that has to do with the harmony of that unit, the high performance of that unit, with all the different variables that go into play. You know, we have people from different backgrounds, economic backgrounds, uh, social backgrounds, racial backgrounds. That, again, plays into the, the functionality of the leaders at every level in that chain of command. Once you start having something outside of the chain of command, 
you begin opening up an opportunity for division, um, sanctioned um, division, miscommunication of intent, everything that goes with it. It, it is absolutely dangerous. It is, it is analogous to what they have in the Russian military with uh, commissars. We've never had it before. We've never needed it before. If we didn't have it during the worst sanctions, you know, time of our country, when we had sanctioned segregation and racism, why in the heck do we need it now? It's a dangerous precedent and it's political nature. It's not a civil rights issue. It's not a diversity issue. It's a political agenda using race to justify their agenda. How do we stem it? Well, this is easy. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be, number one, we have to make sure that we elect the right official. This is, this is a political um, drive from the top down, from the White House down. Unfortunately, uh, we're, once we get new, new leaders, we're going to, we're going to have to make a, um, a replacement in our, in our military leaders. For whatever reason, this is not aligned with consistent through the Constitution. And, you know, you and I remember as officers, when we took that oath, that oath was to, to protect and defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. And this is a threat. From my opinion, this is a threat um, to that very oath. Uh, it would be good to have, I believe, good to have attorneys, constitutional attorneys, to begin defining what are some of these threats to the Constitution? What does that look like? And I'd, I'd be so bold to say from constitutional attorneys, give us an idea, a picture, what treason looks like. Because from my perspective, and I don't mean to be, you know, bostic, you know, caustic in my statements, it, it, what the behaviors that we're having today, it seems like we're, we're touching on our toes on what that definition of treason looks like. If we, had to, if we had to draw a line, um, it would be good. And I think it would be healthy for our country if we would know for the entire country what treason looks like and what are those threats to the Constitution. Because what, what I'm seeing across our country in the mil military is something that's um, analogous to a threat to our constitutional beliefs and values and also the chain of command in the military. Well, you touched upon this earlier, Kendall, uh, when you're talking about fatherless uh, children. Uh, you wrote an article recently in The Federalist, which I, I thought was a very powerful uh, argument and you article, and you were presenting these arguments in there. And so when we think about what's happening in the military, which is supposed to be apolitical, but it's being politicized and weaponized in, in a way that's very dangerous, as you touched upon, you know, more broadly, we're seeing this across the entire nation, across our society. Correct. And and you, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of one of the ways we solve this, and that's in the that's through our elections. But how do we energize and empower those candidates running for office to really embrace the existential issues that define our our the future of our nation? Yeah, you know, so we, we have to we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable having you know truth truthful conversations. So, you know, we have again we have an agenda, and 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 when I say these words, I'm getting ready to share. They're not anti LGBTQ. They're not anti gay. They're not anti anyone. They're pro family. They're pro children. 
and the pro evidence data that we know. Um, the evidence has shown, especially in the last 50 years, that children that grow up in fatherless homes have higher propensity for dropping out of high school. They're more vulnerable to sexual and, and physical uh, child abuse. 90% of homeless are from fatherless homes. 71% uh, of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. Uh, when you solve problems, when you go to solve problems, you solve the big juggernaut problems. We don't solve problems to address symptoms. We solve problems to address the underlying problem. And what we, what I have seen in the last three years of me uh, being involved in public service is that that's the one thing we'll never bring up is how do we address this two parent family issue as a culture and as, and as policy as, re as related, because we didn't used to live like this as, as a country overall. And definitely the black community did not live like that before it had help from the social programs of the Johnson administration. Those are just facts. And the, the data is there. And, and those are the things I address. And so it's going to take a grassroots cultural movement, which, which we're doing with our nonprofit. But it's also going to take policy changes and for leaders to recognize when you're in dire straits for the first time in American history. Fifty percent of all births are to um, unwed mothers. First time in American history. No other nation on this planet, no other nation on the, in the world has this high of an unwed, I mean, a fatherless home problem. I'm not talking divorce. I'm talking about there was never a father on the birth certificate, another father in the home. No other country has that problem that we do. And it's high time we have elected officials have the courage to address it. Well, Kendall, I, uh, as I listened to you describe that, uh, I heard compassion not hate, not contempt. And a lot of what we're dealing with right now is emotionally driven. Uh, I'm reading a book by Jonathan Haidt right now, The Righteous Mind. Yes. And most of our moral thinking occurs intuitively. It's what our gut's telling us. And then we rationalize it. So the reasoning part is usually after the decision has been made. After the decision has been made, exactly. I've read that book as well. Yeah, and if facts contradict the uh, intuition, they, they tend to get rejected. So uh, as, as we bring this to a close, uh, how do people learn more about Kendall Qualls and Take Charge? Sure. Again, if you take a look at our website, uh, takechargemn.com, there's a brief bio on me and, and, and more important, a, you know, a foundational mission about uh, what we stand for, uh, Take Charge. And uh, look, if you again look at our video section, it's analogous to PragerU. If you're familiar with their uh, vast li uh, video library, we're developing the same thing, but it's really based on the cultural values and what it takes to turn our country back around, uh, starting in the black community. And it's only uh, starting in the black community because we've suffered the most and the longest by following this government led direction that has decimated the culture of who we are. Well, that's a great closing statement, Kendall. Any other last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience before we bring Yes, absolutely. I am optimistic about our future. I'm, I'm very optimistic about who we are as, um, as Americans, and I'm confident we can uh, get this problem solved. Oftentimes, the, the best solutions and, and the long-lasting solutions are not from government. or from, It's from the people from starting from the bottom up.
it's an honor to know you, Kendall, and uh, Godspeed on your mission. Thank you, Ron. It's an honor to know you as well, and we will be successful. Thanks a lot. Good Great. day. Have a good day.